0: I'm
1: Ash Bennington. Welcome to Building Blocks, a podcast about people's journey into the Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital asset space. Join me as we seek to get to the bottom of what's really happening. Bill, welcome to Building Blocks.
0: Hey Ash, great to be here.
1: It's great to have you here. You know, this is obviously a podcast where we talk about people's individual journeys into the crypto space. You've had an incredible one and an incredibly interesting one at that. So, Bill, tell us a little bit about what you did before you got into crypto.
0: Yeah, sure. So for me, crypto meant cryptography when I was younger. Uh, I I worked at the CIA and then uh, out here in California at NASA, NASA. Uh, for many years, uh, I worked on secure messaging systems at the CIA. It was very different in those days. It was before public-private key cryptography existed, uh, and so securing messaging meant physical infrastructure as well as uh, application level and and network level. So it was a, a you, you had to uh, basically make sure no one was listening is the bottom line. Whereas today, with public-private key cryptography, you actually assume people are listening. Uh, so it was a very different time and. Um, Learned a ton. uh, Was really interested in capital markets, so I made my way to 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 Goldman. uh, Worked in fixed income. uh, Really wet my chops on risk management, which has served me quite well the last couple of years. Given everything that's going on in our space, yeah. Uh, Also saw you know everything with long term capital management and and that blow up and fiasco and um, and 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 really while while I really enjoyed it, I, I wanted to get back to my to my roots, which was software and tech and. I ended up back in, in, in California, um, working for Netscape and, uh, worked very early on certificate authorities and and SSL, which is the the backbone for the secure internet today. Um, uh, you know, that is has HTTPS when you, when you surf the web and, um, and that was really my first foray into consumer facing businesses because we were building one of the fastest consumer businesses in the world at the time or fastest growing consumer businesses, I should say. the in the world and it was really the first kind of big internet business and it was my it was my business kind of lesson in management where i, I guess goldman was my mba in finance uh, netscape was my mba in sales and and marketing and everything that goes along with having a P&L, um which i i don't think i could spell PL before i went to went to netscape so it was it was a pretty pretty interesting trial by fire lesson in how to how to be a, a manager and and build a business, which was awesome because it's really become my passion is basically merging new technology and and, and payments and and business building and being an entrepreneur. And uh, when you have no choice, it, it it's really it's amazing what you what you can figure out and do and uh, learning how to hire and fire and ask questions and in interviews and figure out who's the right person for the right job and uh how to deal with cultural issues because I had employees in like 10 countries um uh, and, and all the things that go along with that and and I've been an entrepreneur ever since really at heart. I, I invest in companies but I also have started many companies. Uh some have been more successful than others and and it's all led me to, to crypto over the last kind of 10 years. And uh I I'm so grateful that that the roads have all led here. I can't imagine um you know what would have happened if I had made a few different small, different decisions along the way, and might not have led me here. And and um, I'm grateful that it did.
1: Well, you know, it's like the old line that life can only be understood in reverse. Though you must live it forward. When you look back on all that experience, cryptography, CIA, capital markets, Goldman Sachs, uh, working at Netscape, it does sort of almost naturally bring you to this point of working in the crypto digital asset space. Tell us a little bit about
0: how you went down that rabbit hole. It's a great question. So I was working on some projects in the remittance world, the traditional remittance world. And for people who don't know what that means, it's basically kind of the Western Union model of sending money from Mexico to the U.S. if you're... um, uh, in, in immigrants, right? And they use remittance services like uh, Western Union. And um, yeah, so I was working on ways to make that faster, better, cheaper, uh, more accessible to immigrants, how to use the early cell phones, pre-iPhone, pre-Android. Um, and uh uh yeah, and it worked out uh, pretty interestingly for me. Uh, but as soon as I saw the the Bitcoin white paper, uh, and and by the way, I was working in Mexico, Haiti, Guatemala, Philippines. You know, uh, all the places that traditionally have you know exported workers to places like the U.S. or India to oil fields uh, in the Middle East. And I read the Bitcoin white paper probably. A few weeks after it was published. And my first reaction was, I think this guy thinks, or gal, thinks they've solved the double spend problem. And we had always kind of assumed in our circles that that wasn't going to happen. Mm. People have been trying to solve that this problem forever. And we had pretty much come to the conclusion that it was unsolvable. Bill, for people who may not know, what is the double spend problem? Sure, sure. The double spend problem basically says if you store money digitally as a bare instrument, like money on your hard disk, like you could store in the old days before streaming, you would store an MP3 file or a Word file on your hard disk. You can copy that file an infinite number of times. Now, if you store money on a computer somehow, what prevents you from copying that money an infinite number of times and then spending that money? So you spend the money twice, or you have a double spend problem. And the ingenious here, and and part of the reasons I'm convinced that Satoshi is not an academic, is that no one had ever thought of the idea of using every single computer in the world to solve the problem, which is basically what you know mining and proof of mining based proof of work actually does. It's incredibly inefficient. Everybody had always assumed that the answer to the double spend problem would be unbelievably elegant and efficient. And and, and so anyway, I put it aside for a while and I said, I don't know about this. It just seems crazy to me. And um, I started to read a little bit more about it in some of the cryptography news groups. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to I got to take a look at this again. And in the meantime, I'm fighting all of these battles for remittances, payments, money transfer with regulators, banks. Uh, dealing with fees, dealing with the travel associated with, with these rural hotspots and trying to set up cash networks to pay people who have received remittances on these phones uh, that we were working on. And here comes this solution that when you read it, and I'm thinking about it from my perspective right now, nothing to do with um, monetary systems. It's It's just, how do I make it easier for migrants to send money around? And I'm saying to myself, this really solves almost every problem that I have. It eliminates all of the intermediaries. It's is free. At that point there was no, you know, real fees in the network. It was zero, it cost zero to move. uh, And and, you know, today we network fees are very high, but at that point on-chain transactions were free because nobody was using it. Right. And so it, it was free. It was decentralized. There was no off switch. There's no government. There's no banks to ask for permission. There's no governments to ask for permission. Uh, in theory, if two people send money directly to each other, there's no licensing involved because I was dealing with how to get money transmission licensing in place in multiple countries, multiple U.S. states all at the same time. And I'm like, wow, this really is kind of the, the holy grail of, of money transfer and, and remittances. Now, things have changed a lot since then. But it was in the back of my mind, and, and as soon as we sold the company that I was working on to um, to one of our investors, uh, Digicel, I said, I'm all in. I, I really want to focus 100 and By this time, by the way, I was already talking publicly about Bitcoin. I had given a public talk about it. I was mining on my own, but I wasn't doing anything professionally with it. I already had some. I was giving away a lot from my what I was mining Um but I wasn't digging in from a professional perspective. But I always knew that there was this solution here that, that, and this is, by the way, 2012, 13, right? So so I, I was always there in my mind and, and time was marching on, mining, you know, and investing in some early companies, starting, all of a sudden, they're startups, right? I had met with Brian and Fred in the early days when they started this company Coinbase that was going to make it easy for people to buy and sell Bitcoin. And I said, well, you don't need that. Because Gavin's giving it away for free on the web. So <laughs> what do you need? You don't need an exchange. There was no other coins, right? So there was no crypto. It was just Bitcoin. The, the word crypto wasn't used because it there was just Bitcoin. I said, you don't really need an exchange because it's just Bitcoin and Gavin's giving it away. And nobody understands how private keys work anyway. So we need a way to make this consumer friendly. And anyway. By the way, for people who may be wondering, uh Gavin is Gavin Andreessen.
1: Yeah. Uh, and uh the folks that you're talking about are Brian Armstrong and Fred Eshram over at Coinbase, who are the
0: founders. The, the founders of Coinbase, yeah. And and so and I and, and there was others that, that are now infamous in the crypto world that I was spending time with and just kind of learning what they their thoughts were and Anyway, I think finally around 2016 or so, I, I I bit the bullet or 15, I bit the bullet, and I said, "All right, I want to I want to try this. I think I think we can actually create a company here uh, to basically facilitate kind of banking transactions via Bitcoin." And it was still just Bitcoin, right? Uh, I think XRP existed, and that was about it. There was some rumblings, and 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 Vitalik was starting to write about smart contracts on on Bitcoin. Um, and I had this idea that if we could create um, an algorithmic stablecoin, right, using Bitcoin as the asset, not some new asset, that maybe we could move dollars around peer to peer, like tying two cups together with a string. So when you used to talk to your friends, you know, from a distance and they could hear you, we could actually move money around that way and solve this remittance problem. Right. And that ultimately became Abra, A-B-R-A, right? So um, a better remittance app. So so that was the idea and it worked. Technically it worked fine. Turns out that acquiring customers in the remittance space and setting up networks to get cash in and out is unbelievably expensive. And we had some ideas for for doing that, all of which we're using at Abra today, by the way. Even the UX that you see in Abra today is is reminiscent of what we were doing in, in the early remittance days which is part of why it's so easy, I think, compared to a lot of these exchanges, which assume that you're kind of a pro trader in the user experience. And uh, yeah, so after kind of many iterations, it it turned into the ABRA that you see today. Uh, We have a lot of users in developing markets. We have a lot of users in wealthy markets. We have people holding millions of dollars in ABRA. We have people holding... $5, $6 $5, $6 in Abra, in developing markets. We have people who wire money in eight figures, and we have people who go up to cash outlets, put $5 in you know, pesos on the table, and walk out with Bitcoin in their Abra app. And I've never seen a single system before that has managed to capture such a wide swath of the kind of socioeconomic income pyramid, whatever you want to call it, in, in, in one system, right? Right. Uh, Now, sometimes it's for different reasons. They're doing different things. Some people are sending money. Some people are speculating. Some people are trying to earn yield. Some people are trying to borrow against crypto. But it's all one big banking system globally that we've built using uh, Bitcoin and crypto rails as, as the backbone. Families have a lot going on.
1: So we're going to talk more about Abra in just a moment, but I wanted to ask you touched on perhaps the greatest mystery in Bitcoin, who Satoshi Nakamoto is, who he, she, they are. You mentioned that they you're in your view based on your academic experience, you don't think that they are an academic. Give us a little bit of a context of who you think they may be and why.
0: Yeah. I think I have some feeling that I've met this person already. Uh, and I, and I, I'm not going to say why because it, it, I have no proof, but but I, I think that Satoshi was not an academic because at its core, Bitcoin is the most inefficient transaction processing system ever de- devised by man, right? And so that's fine. It wasn't designed to be efficient. It was designed to solve the double spend problem that I described earlier. And that's the disconnect, right? Uh, from an academic perspective, you would say, well, this has to be elegant it has to run on a, a small network. It can't use the electricity of a small country, um, but it's less to solve that double spend problem. I still think that's not possible, right? At least the way we think about it in in, in secure terms at large scale. And that proof of work is the best solution out there to the double spend problem. I think smart contracts is a different story, but but I think therefore because of this inelegance of the 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 way you know proof of work is more or less a brute force approach to solving the the double spend problem, which is also in some circles known as the the Byzantine generals problem in math. Right. Is is you know basically it's it's yeah, like I said, it's just this unelegant. Brute force approach that becomes statistically more accurate in its solution over time as you have more network effects in the system, and like I said, that's not an elegant academic solution at all. Uh, And honestly, I don't think there is one. And and so that's the brilliance and why I think this was a smart programmer who looked at the problem in chunks in a way that. Cryptographers and others from a math perspective and academic perspective who were holistically looking at the problem couldn't solve. And it's the only solution that makes sense to me or the only explanation that makes sense to me.
1: Well, that's so fascinating for a number of different reasons. First, philosophically, the idea that we tend to think of holistic problem solving as being superior, but your analysis of this is that chunking it down into individual parts, the way programmers are taught to do more or less from the moment they enter the industry, rather than thinking about things holistically, the way mathematicians would tend to look at a problem, that in itself is fascinating.
0: Yeah. And I'm not a PhD. You know, I was, I, I'm a Stanford. Uh, I was in the grad school program in computational math at Stanford. I'm a dropout. So I went to go work at Goldman. So, so I kind of skirt both worlds a little bit, like I'm a layman at everything. And, and, and so I kind of get all perspectives here. Um, and, and I think that to your earlier point about how in the world, do you become qualified for what I do? And I got lucky because I was working at Goldman, I was working you know, in capital markets, and then I was at Netscape in early internet payments. And it's given me, I think, a unique perspective on, and in hindsight, of course, because I didn't figure it out, uh, on how one might have figured out what became Bitcoin.
1: And so I have to also ask another component of that that's fascinating is you believe that this was one programmer. Are they still alive? Why haven't they touched the original Satoshi coins? There are just so many questions.
0: I think the keys are gone. I don't think it was one person. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm guessing that the keys don't exist anymore. By accident, almost. I don't know. I mean, if you if you go back, the timing of when Satoshi disappeared versus Gavin visiting the CIA, um, I don't think there's anything nefarious in Gavin visiting the CIA. I just think, you know, I think if you're Satoshi and you are have a touch of paranoia, uh, go back and read. It, it, you know, I, I don't I don't know if I would say by accident, by design, out of fear, manipulate. I don't know. I don't know. But I, ha- I do have a feeling it was more than one person. But the majority of the tech design was probably done by one person. There's also some inconsistencies in in the way they they speak uh, in the uh, in the the news forums or whatever they are, where they different tone of voice and different times. And so who knows? But that's my speculation.
1: Yeah. Well, this is just fascinating. Before we get uh, too far down the uh, conspiracy theory rabbit hole around Satoshi, which is probably a mystery that we may never know the answer to. I hope not. You hope
0: not. Yeah. I don't want it to be solved.
1: It's almost more interesting because it gives you this kind of creation story, this uh, anonymous creator, this martyr who's disappeared from, the, from our view. I
0: also don't want a Linus Torvalds for Bitcoin. I think for a generic operating system like Linux, having uh, a benevolent dictator makes a lot of sense because you get things done and the project marches forward. I think there's a happy medium between Bitcoin as digital gold. Look, you can't change the atomic structure of gold. But there's a hell of a lot more of it in the universe than what we found. So Bitcoin has the benefits of its mathematical properties make it finite, guaranteed finite, but it is changeable. But we want those changes to come slowly, with great debate, and probably with great pain. And having a benevolent dictator actually diminishes the pain. And and so I actually think in that regard, it's probably better Uh, if we don't know who Satoshi is and they're not no longer the benevolent dictator of the project, which was necessary in the early days, obviously somebody had to start it. Um, And, and to your point, it also creates the flair of mystery, which I think is interesting, right? Uh, but probably not as important as making sure that Bitcoin progresses at an, at a, um, a reasonably slow rate. Yeah.
1: Okay. I also wanted to talk about Abra. So, you know, this obviously the lending and borrowing functions that Abra provides, something that are very much in the headlines today as yes. we see challenges uh, all across the world in these what are generally called c platforms. I don't want to mischaracterize it, but I think that you would probably agree that it's to a certain extent a C5 platform. Let's talk a little bit about what that is, what that means. Uh, C5, obviously, in contradistinction from DeFi for people who are relatively new to this space. Give us a little bit of context and color about how you think first about Abra and how it gets classified as a C5 platform.
0: Sure. Uh, before crypto, we didn't need the phrase or the moniker is C5 versus D5 because everything was c a bank is c centralized finance right so so uh, at its core abra is providing what we would call crypto banking services the ability to buy and sell you know 100 different cryptos the ability to earn yield On cryptocurrencies. We we now offer direct staking, and I'll explain the difference in a moment. Um, The ability to borrow against crypto. And then we have institutional services, which mirror a lot of the the retail services. But basically, if you were going to apply banking principles to crypto, you would end up with ABRA. All right. So now, how is Abra potentially different and and hasn't suffered from this contagion that happens to be happening in all of CFI or much of CFI right now? So I have been spending the better part of two years, including, you know, Raul's show that I went on, I think about 15, 16 months ago, where I actually railed against a lot of the early practices that I was seeing in sci-fi companies who didn't understand risk management. All right. Now, I, meant, I mentioned I wet my chops in this stuff when I was back at Goldman, right. when I was working in fixed income research and really understood how how debt worked. We were dealing with um, uh, distressed debt, emerging market debt, uh, you know, Brady's, which was a, a, a form of, of, of government debt restructuring Brady bonds, uh, from yep. the early 90s. And yeah. And, and, and so I really understood um, the effects of, you know, of rate movements, of concentration risk, of duration risk in portfolio models, and a bunch of things that I'm guessing that people who've suffered from this still don't understand. Right. So we built a crypto banking system from the ground up, one, to be compliant, which is why we launched it later than everyone else, because we actually took a different approach, um, which I can explain, but many people may not care, but it's still running, which should tell you a lot. And, And two... We, we integrated these core tenets of risk management into the solution from day one, which is why we haven't suffered the losses or the write downs or you know the pause and withdrawals or any of the solutions or issues that others have had. Now we also use both CFI lending and DeFi to generate yield. Uh, others do it, but I think we're one of the larger ones to do both. And we're now offering DeFi based options, starting with ETH staking directly to end users. So they can choose whether they want to earn yield on Ethereum via lending or staking. What's
1: the difference for people who may not know?
0: Sure. So, so originally we're offering yield just as a bank would, and and then how does a bank pay interest? Mostly business and and commercial loans and 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 a lot of mortgages, and and they keep eighty five percent of the interest and pay fifteen percent of the interest, which is why uh, a consumer savings account pays ten basis points of, of yield today. Aber does the opposite. Uh, we we keep you know fifteen basis points and pay eighty five percent of the interest for the most part to the the depositor all right Uh, but it's generated via uh, loans to others in the crypto space who are then providing cryptocurrency as collateral that's lending staking says i'm going to supply my ethereum to a validator now remember um, bitcoin uses uh proof of work mining to basically write new transactions in the Bitcoin ledger, or I call it the Bitcoin checkbook. Okay? And Ethereum today does the same thing. right? It's a distributed checkbook, you write a new transaction in, and you use this mining uh, proof of work to determine what the next set of transactions are that you're going to write in the checkbook, and the rest wait for another few minutes. Ethereum is changing to a proof-of-stake system which no longer uses mining, it basically says each person can stake a certain amount of their Ethereum in a validator node. Validator node basically is like an away point at an airport or a security check that says, okay, based upon how much Ethereum you're staking, you get the right every few minutes to validate a bunch of new transactions coming in to the Ethereum network and write them to the Ethereum blockchain. And the more Ethereum you stake, the higher the chance that you're going to actually get a chance at some point soon to validate more transactions and win more Ethereum for doing that. And on average, it results in an interest rate that the entire network gets over time. Okay. And and the only risk there becomes technology risk because you're not lending money to anyone. We're not lending crypto to anyone. You're just taking technology, smart contract risk. Now, the only disadvantage to that right now is that the price you pay for staking is that your crypto is locked up. Your Ethereum is locked up. And right now, it's probably locked up for another 16 to 18 months, I would guess, maybe to the end of next year.
1: You know, there's a lot of talk about the relative merits of the security mechanism in proof of work. if Bitcoin versus proof of stake, the direction that Ethereum is yeah. going, you've spent a lot of time thinking about precisely these issues theoretically and practically. What are your thoughts about that security model, the new proof of stake security model that Ethereum is moving toward?
0: yeah. so so I'll, I'll give you the spectrum, right? so I think I think Bitcoin as the hardest money we've ever known, should be very hard to change, as I mentioned, and should stay with proof of work as uh, either forever or as long as it can. As close to forever as you can come, I guess. I, I don't know what that number would be. It's infinity minus one, I guess. But but, but proof of work is, is, is the basis for hard, sound money. That is not what Ethereum is trying to be. Ethereum is trying to be the world's computer. So out of the gate, it was very easy or easier for Vitalik and his team to take the core tenets of Bitcoin, change it to an account based model and keep proof of work and add smart contracts on top. Great oversimplification, but that's basically what they did. However, that doesn't scale very well. As I said, Bitcoin is very inefficient. It's not trying to be efficient. It's trying to solve the double spend problem and be incredibly secure while it's doing it. So how do you basically go from inefficient, but incredibly secure, solving the double spend problem, to being the world's computer for everyone. You have to make compromises. There's no other way. There's no other way, all right? The compromise is if we go to proof of stake, we do probably sacrifice in the short term, maybe not in the long term, but we probably sacrifice in the short term a certain amount of network security for scalability, Mm. okay? Now there's a business argument in there, which is interesting. Ethereum generates over a billion dollars a month in network fees f- via, you know, uh, get gas and you know for stable coins, NFTs, um um yeah, DeFi, right? Uh I think last month it was like 1.3 billion in dollar terms uh, in in GUE network fees. That's a lot of money. That's all going away. So you can make a business case that well, wait a minute. We've been supporting the network all along. Why are you taking this money away from us? Well, it's because we can't we can't scale the network if we don't Right. So so this is where you land in that distinction between being the world's computer and being the hardest money based upon math and cryptography that the world has ever seen. And there are two different sets of requirements solving two fundamentally different problems. They just get lumped in crypto because of how they've evolved over time.
1: Hmm. It's so interesting, Bill, listening to you talk about security, talk about the challenges that we've seen in the c5 space, you know, when I'm out here in New York City, it seems especially after a couple of cocktails, people walk up to me and they ask me, like, "Well, how could this happen? These things that we've seen that are happening right now in the c5 space, how could they happen?" And and you touched sure. on something that I think is really core at the at the sort of macro level to how this happened. Um, you know, I spent a little bit of time working in the fixed income world, doing some tech stuff uh, on and around a, a high yield desk. And I think, for me, the overarching theme here is that a lot of these folks who are running these platforms came at it from a pure computer science perspective. They never had the experience of working in finance. They never had the experience of working in fixed income, of thinking about these issues, thinking about, you mentioned earlier, talk about going back to old school use cases uh, for for, for risk management, things like LTCM, how the bottom can fall out, how things especially, how things can work for so many years flawlessly until right. there's a run, until there's speculation, until you get forced liquidation, until the leverage right. builds up to that one click above where the system can tolerate it, and then it all collapses like a colossal yeah. house of cards.
0: Yeah. It's the proverbial when the tide goes out, we'll see who's been swimming naked. And the tide went out in the 90s with long-term capital management. It turned out that long-term capital management was like the biggest counterparty to half of Wall Street and, and their international brethren at the same time. And no one knew it. I don't even know if LTCM knew it, the degree to which they were the largest counterparty for everyone in the prime broker space. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, it turns out that it doesn't really matter in in a CFI model. The actual asset itself, whether it's gold or equities or bonds or swaps or credit default swaps or crypto, is not the most salient issue from a risk perspective. The risk models and the risk questions are probably 85% the same. There's nuances to crypto that, that make it a little bit different. But if you're rehypothecating multiple times over and over, if you don't know um, where the collateral is going and where it's coming from, and therefore, uh, you know, everybody has exposure to more or less the same collateral being used over and over again, and people are making levered bets with false assumptions on risk models, I didn't say crypto, I didn't say equities, I didn't say gold in any of that. That can happen in all of those things. And it has. It's happened in LTCM. It happened now in the crypto space. That's poor risk management, pure, full stop, full stop. It's not crypto specific. It's just risk management. right? And that's what's happened. And like I said earlier, I've been railing about this. I can show you a video I did. Somebody forwarded it back to me online. I guess it was in January I did it. I said, companies in this space are going to fail. Because they're not paying attention to this, and the tide is eventually going to go out. Now, I didn't think right. it was going to happen this summer, <laughs> um, and, and, and so I, I'm and I'm sorry that it did. And we're we're to a certain degree trying to help people who have been affected, but to the extent we can, since it's not our those aren't our companies, but but it was predictable, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, you know, two points that are are really fascinating. First is just how long the tide can stay in, how long things can be unstable without things blowing up is really a fascinating point. And to your point, the timing always seems like it's impossible.
0: I would say this is maybe an advantage for crypto that it may not feel like it with everything going on. But I think our space is more transparent than other financial markets in our space, meaning crypto. And I'm going to put the C5 players in the same space. A lot of this yield is coming from DeFi, so people online on Twitter are, are turning into financial uh, sleuths, where they're tracking the movement of money and saying, "Oh, Celsius just moved this money out of this wallet into this system to pay off this loan." Well, that doesn't happen in equities prime brokerages. Nobody knows what's going on unless they do a press release and you know there's some forensic analysis by the courts afterwards, right? But in crypto, people are looking at this, and so. I think, I think two things probably are true here. The contagion was probably faster than it, than it would have been in other spaces because of the nature of crypto and how it moves. And I think the contagion, which is probably bottomed out, was not as deep because of this, because of this s- somewhat symbiotic, in hindsight, not totally symbiotic, relationship between CFI and DeFi right now. Um, that was crypto's ultimate advantage, right? And this isn't really a crypto problem that I'm describing. This has nothing to do with crypto at the end of the day, right? It's just that crypto enabled a certain amount of transparency in what kind of uh, incompetent, I'm sorry to say, incompetent CFI actors were doing.
1: Yeah. You know, going back to LTCM, I sort of suggested that many of these folks just didn't have the capital markets or financial services experience because they came from the computer science side. It's worth pointing out in the case of LTCM, they had two very prominent Nobel laureates on staff, Robert Merton uh, and Myron Scholes. That last name Scholes may be familiar because he was the co-author, co-creator of the Black-Scholes options pricing model that in theory talks about precisely the types of uh, risk management and risk trade-offs that we've been discussing here. So these are very thorny mathematical problems and very challenging for even the most sophisticated folks in finance to solve.
0: Yeah, but you – you have to ask basic questions, right? And one of them is, OK, what are our risk assumptions uh, around volatility, around rate movements? And what happens when this moves outside of those parameters? And do we have a way to get out? Meaning if if, if you're committed to being in, fine. Um, we weren't. But others were, and we're over-leveraging themselves. Do we have a way to get out? And if the answer is no, you really need to rethink what you're doing, because if you think that it's not going to happen, history has proven you wrong. And again, this has nothing to do with crypto. right? And so it's not even a black swan. We have not experienced a black swan. This is just people making incorrect assumptions around these volatility and risk parameters, which has happened over and over again uh, in, in, in banking. Bill, I have to ask when you get the call when
1: someone calls you up and says, "Bill, we've seen all these failures. Should we be worried about Abra?" How do you seek to reassure them? And what evidence do you offer that you guys uh, are not going to be faced with similar types of risks?
0: Sure. So so the management team at Abra we we use Abra. So our, I'm all in. I don't I don't keep liquid cash anywhere else. I pay my bills via bank because I can't pay the bills via Abra yet, so I keep money there for that. But everything else in terms of cash and crypto is an average. So I'm highly incentivized to make sure that all this stuff I'm pontificating about is true. Uh, and, and that aligns my interests with, with our clients, which is exactly where I, how I think it should be. And so we have weekly risk meetings uh, where we spend eight, nine hours a day uh, going through all of the lending book issues, the DeFi positions. What new positions are we considering? What new counterparties have we been onboarding for the last few weeks, and uh, what are we considering doing with them? Usually, it takes three or four weeks just to get them to the committee, uh, either for new DeFi opportunities or new, you know, CFI lending opportunities. And we're evaluating those risk parameters on an as we go basis, and it's twenty four seven. And that's we have, you know, two teams dedicated to that for both CFI and DeFi now. And I think they're really good at it, which is why we haven't suffered from the contagion the way many others in in this space have. And it's table stakes for me now going forward that everyone who, well, I, I think two things. One, CFI is not gonna go away quickly as it relates to crypto, but we're committed to making sure that everything I've just said remains true. Now two, I think more and more of what we do is going to use defi rails hmm. over time. And the opportunity for Abra is how much value can we add on top of that complexity, which is uh, you know, like we get into it if you want, but it's a whole other kind of ball of wax that we've been kind of unwinding for ourselves to understand the last couple of years and and now I think we're really ready to go to the next level and start leveraging DeFi more to facilitate the kind of banking services that we want from yield, trading, NFTs even, which we're launching in in the Abra Apps, which has never been done before in a non-DAP environment. Um and some other like even the Abra card is going to have rewards tied to uh you know smart contracts. So so all of this is I think moving maybe with a CFI user experience to a DeFi backend over the next, probably year or two. And I'm super excited about it because as I said, the existing models don't really, doesn't really matter whether you're doing equities or fixed income or crypto. It's just a traditional, not exactly prime broker, but something similar to a prime broker model. And what I'm talking about is truly changing banking as a company, but leveraging DeFi rails. Well, you just touched
1: on exactly what my final question was going to be, which is where do you see this going, Uh, not just over a shorter-term time horizon, 6 to 12 months, for example, but where do you think we're going to find ourselves in the next, say, 3 to 5 years? I sensed from that answer that you see the increasing aspect of DeFi becoming more prominent as these transactions become more programmatic, more rules-based more uh, with collateral locked into the system. Talk a little bit, big picture for a layman's audience, about where you see us landing in the next three to five years.
0: Yeah, I have I have a five-year view, and then I have kind of a 15 to 20-year view. My five-year view is that companies like Abra uh, that are responsible and are probably going to end up being banks, right, Be, uh, and just bite the bullet and say, hey, look, you want to pay yield? You want to lend against crypto. Uh, you you want to enable exchanging crypto assets. You want to store NFTs and other collectibles for people in a banking-like environment. You should probably be a bank. And there's no, that's OK. The, you know, Like I said, there was no C5 versus DeFi before because you didn't need it. Everybody was a bank uh, or money transmitter like Western Union. And we're just going to get better over the next three to five years at making... The early adopters of of DeFi have a much better ex- uh, uh, of DeFi. Sorry, the early adopters of DeFi having a much better experience. Uh, we call it eliminating the MetaMask madness of losing your keys, um, accidentally sending funds to the wrong chain, whatever that means, uh, and a whole bunch of other things that are causing probably fifteen to twenty percent of you know assets tied to specific private keys to be gone, poof, gone forever. And we think that CFI can play a huge role in acting as a bridge between where, where the user experience is now with your mobile banking and online banking services and what you can do with DeFi without having to be an expert or a PhD in MetaMask or key management that's 3 to 5 years. That's everything like I said from swapping between cryptos, earning yield on your cash, even paying your bills potentially, uh getting, you know, NFTs and gaming but in a consistent, simple, easy to use environment. That takes us out 3 to 5 years. I think in 15 20 years, the largest banks in the world are using these rails. Full stop. And I I I I can't see a scenario where DeFi and smart contracts and, and this type of, of blockchain-based software hasn't penetrated every banking system in the world. Whether it's tokenized equities to uh, all of the you know payment rails that we've been discussing, uh, where layer two will become the dominant form of moving money around, uh, peer-to-peer lending using these solutions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And and so this is just, you know, we're in early adopter mode. The good news is, is the early adopters are gonna be probably five to 700 million people in the next three to five years. So you can build a, a fantastic, sustainable business along the way. Bill, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, always
1: a thrill. Thanks for listening, everyone. All right, that's a wrap on Building Blocks. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto, where the crypto conversation always continues.